Blog Talk Radio. On the spot analysis, am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. I, I think I'm going to come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. Gotta get it. Oh, my favorite, though. Am I? You're my favorite. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. I think not. Put me on the e-meter and ask me a question, and the needle would float. book that one video game and you don't work for three months, how do you live off $600? And how do you have the time free in the day to go to auditions if you're not working another job? You know what I mean? I was so. about to say, there's people who responded to, you know, there was a whole thing, I don't know if it's still going on, the uh, Voice Acting Matters campaign. Oh yeah, we're still striking, man. Still striking, so That's people respond. The income that went away for me. Yeah. I was doing Call of Duty and World of Warcraft and Dead Islands and whatever, all these Big game GTAs, and now I can't do them because those are, you know, not all of them are connected to strikes. The strike. We're not striking against every company. Right. It depends on the it's company. 11, I believe. Okay. Yeah, it's 11. So I've already done one video game that's uh, cleared from a company that's cleared while we've been striking. That I can't talk about, of course, because they make you sign an NDA. Right. <laughs> well, I can't even tell you what kind of character I was playing in that game, and it was a very different character for me. But. Well, I was going to say, they, they, people come back to that and they say, $600 a day, I'd love to be able to make that, but there's that other aspect you don't yeah. see where you're not working another couple months or whatever. Now, some, of course, some voiceover actors are like rock stars. They oh, yeah. Animation the top the people. And they get more yeah. money than the rest of us, you know. And then, that's the one reason being a journeyman actor and a character actor might begin to work to my advantage. If I could get a couple decent roles to give me a little bit of heat, then you, it actually helps your voiceover career. Like, there's two actors you might know that I'm often up against them for animation, and I always lose out because they're kind of stars. Right. They're not big stars, but one is uh, Clancy Brown, who's a white actor who was in Highlander back in the day and had this incredible deep voice I guess he's been doing voiceover ever since sure I've seen him in Shawshank for that you know he works all the time yeah and the other one is an American actor named Keith David ah and because because they have these deeper lower big voices I'll be against them and I'll lose because may, I'm sure their performance is great maybe it's better than mine anyway but on top of that well, it's so and so Right. The name name matters so and, and that, yeah. It does. And even if it's just trying to make extra money by going to Comic Cons and things and I'm not, you know, famous enough to do that. You know what I mean? My playable character from uh Call of Duty Black Ops three isn't gonna get me on any panels yet. Yet. So <laughs> it's coming. Well, you know, I maybe I'll book and even this character I'm playing in this uh, animated series that I can't talk about, but um, <laughs> it's not gonna break me out. 
<laughs> well, I'm looking yeah, at. I looked at your guy. reel. I looked at your acting reel on YouTube. It's out there. Yeah. Yeah. You have a reel out there. One. Yeah. Is it a newer one? I need to see the newer one. But uh. Oh yeah, I have a. I got. You got to have something that looks the way you look today with the long hair. Not regularly, not regularly watching you on TV and stuff, and, and not knowing all that much about you, and researching you and seeing you, two things happen. One, I recognize you, going, oh, I've seen you before. Well, and the other part, is, yeah. Did you watch Life Goes On when you were a kid, or when you were young? I did not watch Life Goes On. I was recurring <laughs> on that series back in the early 90s or whatever. But, but... <laughs> How was that experience? I mean. Like, if you're up late at night, you'll see me getting killed in one of a dozen movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, two in the morning. You're like, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's that Adam guy. Adam Gifford, Adam G, that's right. <laughs> plus, well, plus, I changed my name, right? I was actually, my legal is G period Adam Gifford. And I went by G Adam Gifford trying to get Latino roles for 20 years. Right. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> you just set yourself up. The final callback. Jacob Vargas and John Ortiz and Adam Gifford, or G. Adam Gifford. They're like, G. Adam, oh. So I changed it to Adam G. because I wasn't, when I hit 30, all of a sudden I wasn't working. And I was ready. I was more ready than ever. Sure. I'm more trained and better shape, better attitude, better everything. And and uh, my agent one day tells me, I can't get you in for these Latino roles. And I realized that Kathy Lee Gifford had become really famous all of a sudden the football player's wife. I knew he talked about it. And so she was like the whitest woman in America. Like, <laughs> so every time I was being submitted, they were like, Gifford, you can't be reading for Paco, you know. So I, I wasn't working, so I... <laughs> I thought Cody changed his name. <laughs> I started working again. But That's... then, 9-11 hit, and you couldn't just be Adam G, or you couldn't get onto any lots. Because they were asking for identification and checking for bombs all of a sudden. And, <sighs> and the world super sparse after 9-11 for brown-skinned guys. Uh, Our world today. Anyway. Our world today, man. <sighs> so I, I was Adam B. And realized it was actually hurting me in voiceover, Chris. Because at the beginning of your auditions, you slate your name. And because I do all these accents, I slate in character. But you can't slate the name Adam G and not subliminally tell the person you're auditioning for that you are not a white person. <laughs> and it, I was not getting, it was hurting me, I swear to God. The second I just said, forget it, well, this ties back to what I was going to tell you before. I quit acting, dude. After 40 years or something in the business, I quit. I quit in 2012 when I, this director put me in a movie that he wrote the role for me in a little tiny indie, but he made me audition. And it paid terrible, and it was the same kind of big, dumb, thug guy I've been playing forever. And I was like, this is not my dream. I'm, I'm, I'm out. And I l left my agent and the manager, and I just stopped doing on-camera acting for three years. And in 2015, an old manager of mine who was very good for me called me up out of the blue and said, I'm working with a new company, diversity is going to happen and you need to be acting again. And I was like, I don't think so. I just read the UCLA and USC diversity reports. My casting is still less than 2% of the entire market in a given year. How am I going to live? He goes, well, I'll, I'll submit you. Let's see what happens. The second or third audition became a recurring role on Longmire. So that's why I'm acting again. I quit wow. after 40-something years for three years. And then rock and roll, same thing, dude. 
when I turned 40, a friend of mine hit me up and said, Adam, I've got all this money I'm making from helping the Democratic uh, campaigns in election cycles. And the other thing was legal marijuana here in California. And I'm an advocate for both those things. Okay. And he goes, I got all this money, Adam, and I can give you another shot. You still look good. You want to do your love child band? Do it. I got a hundred grand for you, earmarked for you. And I then went on that journey and went through all kinds of horrible experiences because rock and roll has become massively racially segregated in the 2000s. And my band, with a Japanese bass player and a German drummer and a Swedish guitar player, and my mixed race that front, I was dealing with a lot of problems and resistance and kind of covert racism and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so it all eventually, it fell apart by 2010, and I quit rock and roll after all these years, after whatever that was, my third record deal, it went bad. Mm. So in 2013, I got hit up by a singer from the old days who was Native American, interestingly enough, a guy named Johnny, um, Johnny X, who was the lead singer of a band called The Wild, that's most famous because their keyboard player was pilfered by Guns N' Roses. Dizzy oh, yeah. Reed. And Dizzy's now been in guns for 27 years, but he was in The Wild. And The Wild was a big deal in L.A. on the Sunset Strip in the late 80s also. And we were kind of like yin yang. He was like black leather and I was wearing white leather. You know what I mean? Paradise in the Wild. Sure. Anyway, so Johnny hits me up and goes, he's got some label that wants to put out a compilation album with our bands and a bunch of bands that almost were discovered in the late 80s on the Strip when everything changed. And um, so I ended up writing the liner notes in that, and that's why you saw me in that interview with Earl. Because when I added my songs to the album, and Johnny and I wrote the liners, and it's like, I can't remember, I think it's like 30 bands, two songs each or something, 60 songs, you know, you've never heard from the 80s, <laughs> like you were talking about before. Right. You love the 80s, you're the real. So we, we put it out, it's called Rock and Roll Rebels and the Sunset Strip, Volume 1. Supposedly he was going to put out a volume two, but it's already been, you know, four years. I don't know. Hmm. So it came out. Uh, we started working on it in 2013, and I realized if I if I'm going to do any Paradise stuff, I better grow my hair. Nobody wants to see an 80s lead singer with short hair. Right. And since I wasn't acting at the time, and I was only doing voiceover, and I just coming back to music. That's what has led me up to putting out the 25th anniversary this year. You know what I'm saying? Like, it all kind of went beyond my control why I got sucked back into music. Sure. Active, even though I quit both of them. After many, many close calls with success and never quite getting anywhere. So, maybe you're, maybe I am supposed to have a great 50s, since my 40s were... Started out great with 100 grand for my uh, Love Child album, but uh, it went downhill real quick. Now, I want to have you back when you're like... When, when you... When you reach that next level when you bust it through because you're going to. Um, I'd love to. Now, what I'm going to do here, before uh, we end, usually what I do is I do 10 questions to every guest. It's think fast, 10 questions. Silly stuff, thoughtful stuff, anything. If you don't like the question, you can pass. I've already had you pass on a portion of my comedy routine at the beginning of the interview. (laughs) That's okay. You don't want to get political. I get you. I I didn't need to do that. I I, I told myself I wasn't going to talk about this administration. That's what I told myself before. And uh, so. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Now, you alluded to earlier. (laughs) Sorry. 
Uh, you alluded to earlier to something with uh, Scientology that you had an interaction with. You know I do a Scientology show. Oh, can, can, can we briefly go over I your... Do, I do, Can we briefly go over your experience? Oh, God, really? You want me to help myself as a suppressive person against their organization again and have them ruin my career again? Oh, shit. Uh, oh, there's a lot more to this than I thought there was. Oh, wow. In fact, my mother might still be in the religion, and she and I don't speak. Your mom? Only because of that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I'll tell you something interesting. She studied with Milton at the Playhouse. Milton was supposed to be like OT4 or OT5, allegedly. Um, you know, which basically means you you can levitate and read minds or something or whatever they tell you. So, okay. Uh, they, were, they were helping people get into that religion the whole time I was aware of the school in Milton and, and my mom was studying there. And she resisted it because they even have an ethics officer in every class there. Oh. And he disseminates a bunch of stuff in the acting book, which apparently he got sued for many years later. No. He's passed away now, so he rest in peace. I guess I could talk about it, talk about him. But because my mother started studying with Milton in the 80s, and she had classmates like George Clooney before he made it, and Michelle Pfeiffer before she made it, and Gail Ferrer just passed away, and all kinds of people, Tom Selleck, all these people who became famous that I knew as a little kid because they were in class with my mom at the Playhouse, Beverly Hills Playhouse. She had little things of Scientology kind of in and around our life, just little statements of things, because that's what Milton was. So he was always, that was always affecting how he communicated to his students. Wow. So he, he, he didn't used, know it. He used the Hubbard Hubbard way. Yeah, but he wasn't... Sometimes he'd mention it, sometimes he'd just say stuff and you didn't know. Okay. And But it was all in the book, and it was everywhere. As I began to find out more about it, because I was also resistant to it just inherently, just on a gut instinct. It just felt wrong. Resistant. Yeah. I didn't trust it, didn't believe it. But that doesn't mean I didn't go and try out some introductory courses, and that doesn't mean that I don't know a ton of tech terms, because I was surrounded by Scientologists for almost 20 years of my life. You know what I mean? In fact, yeah. I was teaching in the year 2000. I had a kid who had been in the Sea Org, who was now trying to leave the religion because of crazy, horrible things they'd done to him that he was telling me about. Like, he's in and there now. Coaching. He's out. But oh, he got out, okay. connect the people who are in that out group but still use the tech. Oh, gotcha. another weird... The independent you know studiers. Yeah, it's like yeah. when they leave the, the polygamous Mormon, but they stay Mormon, you know what sure, I mean? Sure, sure. I know what you mean. <laughs> anyway... I took some courses. I told them they were racist. They didn't like that. They let me, I was like, why well, don't I see any people of color here? And this was like 1996 or seven when I took like just a little tiny $60 intro course, you know, just to ski. And I just, I didn't like anything about it. I didn't like their little outfits and now they talk to me and, and the, it smells terrible in the celebrity center. It's just everything. That's a weird smell. So joke is, here's the punchline. After 20 years of studying with this high-level psychologist, my mother finally goes and tries out some psychology courses, and she gets really in, like, interested and loving it. And I'm looking at my mom like, well, are you losing your mind? And so it began a new level of conflict between us, actually, was connected to that. Wow. And uh, she, she coerced me into doing this whole purification rundown because, you know, I'm a rocker. I've partied, I'm a hippie, I've done acid, I've done peyote, I've done, you know, things. And supposedly purification rundown runs that all out of you. Well, these, and, <laughs> oh, and 
these clowns when I'm done. They're like, no, no, the acid never runs out, so you'll never be able to get clear. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me that, you know, six months ago, you clowns? Why wouldn't you ever be clear? Because I had done acid. Really? That that precludes you from, oh, yeah. Hard, oh, wow. Hard, but, but, and that's what, that's what screwed this kid out of the Sea Org. What he didn't know is his mother had been on acid during his pregnancy or something like that. And that somehow came out later in his life. Actually, you know, I can't talk about him. He'd be pissed off. Okay, all right, all right. He's a good kid, and I don't want to talk about him. No, I don't cause trouble for other people. They stuck me in a room with a guy who was allegedly OT4 from Miami, and this guy was a moron. I gave him so much rope to hang himself, and he just hung himself promptly. (laughs) It was ridiculous. So when I finally was like, listen, you guys, thanks, but no thanks. I'm never coming back here again. I'm not signing away any of my lifetime. Lifetime. I'm never going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars to not get clear anyway. And Oh, they still wanted you to study? Well, of course. Yeah, they want your money. Okay. Yeah. kidding me? Come on. It's a business. It's not a religion. So, and the whole reason actors are susceptible is because what they're telling you is, you will now be in control of your life and your career. Because you have no control when you're waiting for a call, an nope. audition, or something from your agent. You feel so powerless. And so, we're suckers for that thing. Plus, they say, oh, the artists are so important, raise them up. And that's not actually what happens if you're not Tom or John. So. Well, it's working for Jenna anyway. Elfman, right? She's been in a role in the last 10 years, oh, right? Jenna's <laughs> with my mom. And Jenna's somebody who outed Milton at the time when stuff happened. I don't know if she's still in the religion or not. Elfman is, married. yeah. Her husband's in. Um, I don't know. I don't know her that well. I know she studied with my mom a little bit because my mom taught at the Playhouse in the late 90s, mid to late 90s well, as a sub, which is probably what warmed her up to the religion. Anyway, I mean, I can't tell you how many actresses would come up to me because they knew my mom and she was kind of known throughout the whole school. Once she started teaching, she became very popular. Um... And she was, like, one of the only teachers that wasn't Scientologist, practically. I mean, it was, maybe that's not totally accurate. Anyway, she wasn't at the time, and then she started to get interested. But because I was closely associated with her, I'd find myself at auditions, and actresses would, for some reason, want to approach me, and they would confess about messed up stuff that was happening at the school. And so I was hearing stuff getting third party on Scientology for a long time before I finally told them, I don't want to have anything to do with you. My mom's involved, fine. You want to force us to, you know, be separated. What am I going to do? And they forced, they forced you a disconnection between you? No, I said if they wanted to. Oh, you still but connected? I, I told you, I was also teaching kids that were born into the religion. A whole family, this one very rich, white Mexican, wealthy Scientology family. And there were all these gorgeous little talented kids that were all coming up booking acting jobs I was teaching two of their sons and coaching them for bookings and movies and series and all this stuff. And I was able to communicate with them because I knew enough tech terms. So it made it easier for me to coach them. You know what I mean? Okay. It made it easier for me to get art with them, Chris. Affinity, reality, and... (laughs) People listening (laughs) will understand. I know how they talk. And I was doing really well, but when their dad, their very rich kind of absentee dad showed up, he didn't like me at all. He didn't like the influencer I had on his sons. He didn't like that they were booking all these jobs. He didn't really want them to act. And he tried to have the whole Scientology thing come after me. 
and I wasn't even in their religion. So I got put on a list sometime in like 2004, five, something like that, of, you know, uh, suppressive people against the thing, officially, from what I was told. Now, because I've always struggled in the entertainment industry, because nobody knows what race I am at the final callback, and that has crippled most of my career, I never know if it's because of the ignorance of people I'm auditioning for, or if it's because they're Scientology connected. Mm. I don't know how much they actually affected my career, because I've never really gotten anywhere anyway. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I booked jobs, like, what kind of a threat is he? He's nobody saying this. Okay, so I wouldn't think they would have really launched a full-on attack, but who knows? This guy was uh, supposedly a high-level OT. They're vindictive. They're vindictive. The uh, you think the playhouse is being used as a recruiting tool? For uh, well, inadvertently, because Milton was actually what they considered a lapsed Scientologist. Like he wasn't. He was aberrating their tank. So. Oh, that's right. They liked all the they liked all the people they were getting, but they also eventually. And I heard it was Jen Elfman who spearheaded it, but he eventually came after Milton. Well, he's considered a squirrel at that point because he's doing his own studies. Well, he'd been putting L. Ron Tech in his acting book for 30 years. Yeah. Without kicking up back any money. You know what I mean? And that'll do it. I mean, that's what they're concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> but he was sending them tons. I can't tell you how many girls... See, I don't want to talk bad about dead people. I can't say anything bad about Milton. All I mean, right. He did right by me. He was my second mentor. He really helped me as an actor and was a friend and gave me good advice. And even though there were things he did I disagree with, I, I can't... Uh, all I could say is they never got me, but they got my mom. And she and I don't speak for other reasons, but I'm sure the church isn't unhappy about that. Right, right. So they didn't, ha- they didn't, have, to, they didn't have to do a disconnection because you guys have already disconnected regardless. Well, well, no, no. Well, when it when it, when it should have happened, it kind of all was connected in that time. It was coming to a head. Right. Even even my student who was involved with the dad who was trying to attack me, that student ended up dying in a freak plane accident, like a few months after that. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I was I had disconnected from everyone, from my mom's school, from all the Scientologists I know. Like I did it. I pulled away in 2006. Okay. I was trying to changed my life before I turned 40. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really work out, but... Hey. Uh, so, for all I know, yes, maybe they still have a, don't like me, but it's not like I was ever... You know what I mean? Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I'll tell you what, man, when you get when you get uh, the ability to be able to talk about your new show, I'm going to want to promote that on my podcast, so just let me know. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and do this. Let's do 10 questions with Adam okay. Gifford. So, ten questions. Now, when you were doing Saved by the Bell, the new class, did you get to be around Dustin Diamond at all? Um, no. No, he was not on that, right? He wasn't on that show. He was the original cast. And I guess he was guesting, right? He was I guesting, he was. yeah. But his scenes were, I was all, like, hitting on the girl. I'm in the hallway. I'm it was a young African-American character that was one of the new leads that I would have a conflict with. That was my storyline. Because yeah. you, don't, you don't know him at all, right? No, I don't. All right, question number one in ten questions is null and void. Question number two. <laughs> you talked about this. No problem. You talked about this with Inappropriate Earl, and, and I know that you uh, you didn't want to do the hair band, the glam band thing at first, and then you realized that it works. Uh, so you went with the oh. glam band. So in, in the... In the 
in the idea, well, well, in the in the vein of glam bands, and you look at uh, Brad Pitt's flowing hair and fair looks, and Leonardo DiCaprio's early years. Number two, why do women love men who look like women? <laughs> As if I would know. I don't know. Well, you you took you took the role. <laughs> I'll tell you my personal. I'll tell you my personal experience because the first time I ever tried seeing glam was because to get laid. So you're you're right about that. This is what happened. I saw Poison's very first show at the Troubadour um, right after they'd moved here, and they had no fans, no draw. And me and my buddy Stuart are in front of the Troubadour. We're metaled out, all spiked leather. You know, it was Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Van Halen, you know. And these two kind of transvestites come up to us. Now, the club was on in West Hollywood on Santa Monica Boulevard, so it wasn't impossible that transvestites were actually coming up to the metal club and saying, what's going on? But these two guys were named Brett Michaels and Ricky Rocket. Uh-huh. They handed us their flyers, and they had on full base and lip liner and eyeshadow and rouge. And we were like, what? They were trying to look like girls. And then they were like, hey, we're a new band. Come see us. And Stuart and I looked at each other like, that's crazy. We got to see what that is, dude. We were too young to know about the original glam era in the early 70s with David Bowie, Gary Glitter, and The Sweet. And we didn't know about all that. But the guys in Poison, like the guys in Motley, are a little bit older than me. That five or six years, that make a huge difference, you know. And so we went to the show. Nobody came. They put on a show as if they were at Madison Square Garden, and they dropped balloons at the end. And we were like, what? <laughs> six months later, I'm a senior in high school. I'm walking through the hallways, and I see a freshman kid with a Poison shirt. We stop the guy. We go, wait a minute. That can't be those guys that dress up like girls. And we're all at makeup. And they go, yeah, dude, they draw nothing but hot chicks, wall to wall. They're selling out the country club. They're doing two shows a night at the Roxy, at the Whiskey. You know, we're like, what? Not the Whiskey, the Whiskey's closed. So we go, and then, right, it's nothing but ridiculously hot chicks. Me and all my buddies hook up with girls. And we're like, man. So within a few months, you're like, I guess we got to go glam. Right. It doesn't work. It's happening right yeah. now. And then Motley came, and they were all looking like Kiss and Shout the Devil, but they saw what Poison was doing back in L.A., and they put out their glam thing with Home Sweet Home, and we're hanging out with Hanoi Rocks earlier. So they kind of trumped Poison, you know what I mean, and put it out to the public and made it glam like a, a national thing because of that Home Sweet Home video that was on forever and ever and ever. For, yeah. You know. Every morning. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it happened. So I remember the first time my buddy handed me a pink sweatshirt and said, dude, I wouldn't wear makeup. It was a gradual induction. <laughs> I, he gave me a pink sweatshirt that could hang off the shoulder like flash dance style. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. In the 80s. And they cut out the top mm-hmm. and it hangs off your shoulder, which only a girl would do. Yeah. I wore that. I wore that out and I got laid and I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm, I'll go glam. So <laughs> I was glam when we started Paradise because that's what was happening in L.A., 85, 86, 87. You know what I mean? Exactly. But when Paradise started, nobody in the band was glam. So I wasn't really dressing up that glam at the gigs. I mean, I had big hair. Right, you had the big hair, hair band thing, yeah. But I wasn't wearing lip gloss or anything like that. And then, the next year, after we'd been playing for a year, we got, two, we got a new rhythm section. And we got this bass player with gorgeous big blonde hair and this drummer with gorgeous big jet black hair. And all of a sudden, my guitar player's hair had finally grown out, and we finally looked 
like the bands were supposed to look. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Whether you wore a lip gloss or not. So once we did that, once we had all these pretty guys in the band, we realized none of the dudes will buy your pre-sales. The whole scene was pre-sale tickets. You'd have to move as many as 100 tickets for like $8 a pop before your gig. That was a lot of money to a 19-year-old kid in college. Sure was. Working at a little store, you know what I mean? So we would have to grind to, to, and come up with money for flyers and get people to... So what cuts the chase? Girls will buy your pre-sales. Girls like pretty guys in makeup. <laughs> Done deal. You don't know why, you, you just know they do. <laughs> and it, it increased our draw overnight. Wow. We started, we started headlining in like three months. Now, we kept working on our songs, and then we kept trying to downplay the glam as we went forward so that a year from then, we were not wearing makeup, and we were wearing black leather and jeans. And had really morphed and changed, and our songs were more mature, and da 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 But for a period of time, it made a scene that was competitive like you would never believe. Sure. There were so many bands in L.A., no, nobody knows. In 1982, when Motley Crue and Rat and Quiet Riot are playing... There's literally only 20 metal bands in L.A. playing the circuit. When I'm playing in 88 and 89 and selling out, dude, there were literally 700 to 1,000. There were more promoters. There were more clubs opening up. There were more bookers. There were more people stealing from you, more lawyers, more managers, more, more of everything. That's why we were turning down deals, because you thought there'd always be more. Right. And wow. competing in a field where if we're selling out, there's hundreds of bands that can't even sell 50 pre-sale tickets for the 9 o'clock slot. So we did it one by one, one girl at a time, and they liked the pretty glam. I, I'll say this. I'll say this. Long yeah, and think fast. Yeah, uh, but uh, the... Uh, because uh, it actually affects the narrative of what I'm talking about about sure. tonight, and about how we went from being glam into the Hollywood underground era that bridged the space between glam and grunge that people don't know about and there's a lot of bands that were really good that got overlooked because of that shift in fashion and time and it's, you know there's different eras sure. in LA and to me they're important all of them absolutely absolutely Okay, number three. Think fast. <laughs> you're not gonna, you're, you're not gonna like this question, Adam, because uh, I heard you mention this earlier. But uh, here it is: true or false? Kiss was overrated. Well, I really like their songs, not just their makeup at stage show. Now, I saw them at Madison Square Garden, full makeup, original lineup, 1978. I was what was I? I think I was 10. I was in like fifth grade or something. I don't know. And then I saw them when I first moved to L.A. in 1979, the last year with Full Makeup, the Dynasty Tour. And I loved their stage show and all their theatrics and everything they were doing, but I also really enjoyed their music in the 70s. Now, in the 80s, when they lost the makeup and started changing members, I, I only liked some of that material. And it, to me, it was average. And if they weren't the kiss that I fell in love with when Gene was the fire-breathing, blood-spitting demon... I don't think I would have listened to any of their stuff in the 80s. So you say most, mostly false, but... So, yeah. so then it would be overrated in the 80s, but not overrated in the 70s. Yeah, I love their performance now, art. I love their music, but... Now they're black and blue. The guitar player, 
<laughs> he was in the band Black and Blue, and the drummer was in like Badlands, I think. And and it's Gene and Paul, and it's not what it was. Right. If I ran into him in person, I would probably fanboy out, but. I, I actually only like a few of their songs. I do love their, their stage performances, though. They were very good on stage, especially, like you said, in that time frame in the 70s. I'll tell you, listen to the 70s material. It's just better songs. Absolutely. Well, that's the stuff I like, <laughs> mostly. Yeah. Um, number four. With the X and Sex is never going to come close to Beth or no. something great like, you know, Detroit Rock City or, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, number four. Besides the jobs you have now that I know you're very thankful for and wouldn't give back for anything in the world, your dream job would be... Yep. Uh-oh. You there? Hey, can you hear me? Did you lose me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I heard like a weird click off. Okay, so I said... My dream job would be? Yes. Okay. My dream... Okay, well, you mean now? What I'm settling for? Now that I'm staring at 50 and I... No, I no, I'm... no. What do you want more than anything? What role would you like dream to have? Dream I've been trying to achieve? Yes. Dream I've been trying to achieve since I was 12 years old, pretty much. To be a rock star and a movie star worldwide and to be doing action films and to also get critical acclaim and Academy Award-winning work, like a Russell Crowe or a Michael Fassbender, mm-hmm. and also be able to do my hard rock metal band that doesn't need to be the biggest band in the world, but... I wouldn't mind if we were doing arenas like Event Sevenfold. So if I could be fronting my own Event Sevenfold while I'm simultaneously shooting a couple movies a year on location, they're heavy on action and sci-fi and and the things I love, fantasy and sword and sorcery, um, that would be my ultimate fantasy. Why not? Awesome. I like it. Number five, L. Ron Hubbard, crazy or crazy like a fox? Oh, God. Um, well... You know, because I was surrounded by them, I read a lot of stuff about him. And there's a horrible article from Penthouse Magazine in the 70s, which is the only one that would, like, interview Elrond's kid. And his kid told horrible stories about how it started out mm-hmm. and how it was a low-level knockoff of Aleister Crowley's uh, little satanic thing that he was doing, Golden Order of the New Dawn or something. And Elrond had been a member, and the guy who created Ekhan Carr was a member. And the guy who created, I think, the MSIA was a member. And there was another guy, and they all started religion. And apparently he said to his kid in the 40s, when he wrote another sci-fi novel that hadn't made any money, really, uh, Elrond apparently said, I, you know, I'm going to make real money. I'm going to start a religion. This is a true quote? It's a true quote? Absolutely. So you're saying crazy? So that means, to me, he's actually very clever, even though I don't like him. I don't think I would have liked him. Had he been involved, I don't think they would have even. I, I would have been taking the injury of three course for sixty dollars. Right. Because I've seen video of him, and he the way he and listened to audio of him that I wasn't supposed to listen to. But some, they're always breaking their own rules. <laughs> You're not supposed to disseminate tech to people who are at lower levels, but they it'll blow them out like Zemu. They're like it, it, people would always give me information they shouldn't have been giving me. Really. And I heard him talking. Yeah. And I heard him talking. And he, he he turned me off, man. Yeah. So later when I heard he had studied Mein Kampf, Hitler's Mein Kampf, and used to do these public things where he'd use mind control tricks to sort of like, I, I wasn't surprised. Right. So I'm not sure I got an answer, though. Crazy or crazy like a fox? <laughs> the answer is, I guess, crazy like a fox. Then. I think he started out crazy like a fox, but went crazy. So, yeah, that's good. We can go with that. They really ended up believing all that stuff? I think so, to some degree, to some degree. Uh, number six, right. who is your favorite co-star that you work with? Who did you get to work with that was just a dream for you? Oh, my God. 
Oh, no. Time. You know what? The truth is, I can't call this person a co-star. He's the star. I'm lucky to be a guest star. <laughs> okay. But I did a... I, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is fantastic. Mm-hmm. As uh, Henry standing there on um, Longmire on the show, I've been grateful to recur on for the last three years. For he's, two years. He's a good guy. This year again. And Lou was great on a movie I did with him in 92 called Extreme Justice, which was a... Uh, uh, Wow, that was a crazy... That was a movie about a real thing that was happening in the Los Angeles Police Department, and there were death threats in the movie while we were shooting. Wow. We had to change the title of the movie, and it had Scott Glenn and Yasek Toto and Lou Diamond Phillips, and, you know, it was... It was, oof, it was there's funny. that much... Of course, was playing criminal. There's that much going on, conspiracy-wise, in the L.A. Police Department that you're getting death threats? Uh, it was a thing called Special Investigation Systems, and it was like it was like a black ops thing within the police department where they would target criminals, lead them to crimes, and and kill them. Instead of now, I can't say LAPD was doing. That. I'm just saying that's what the movie was about. Okay. okay. All right. The movie was about, but the movie was about something that was also being investigated and was in the papers while we were shooting, and that's why there had been death threats from alleged law enforcement who were allegedly involved in this secret group. <laughs> like you've heard about Rampart, right? No. Rampart skin. Oh, there's tons. Okay, beating Rodney King is just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on. If you want to look up, uh, I, I think I read a stat a few years ago. Now this is now everybody's gonna kill me. Scientologists. I might as well talk about Trump. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about mafia. Hey, let's hit them all. Let's hit them all. <laughs> Jesus, I tried to. I, I must have a death threat. Okay, well. I read it uh, just a couple years ago because I've been profiled and harassed by police since I moved to Los Angeles when I was 12 years old on my bike. I don't want to get into all those horrible stories. Just for your race, the, your appearance. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not a white guy. Right. Not white enough, like my dad. <laughs> right. So, because they never know what I am, and they assume I'm Latino, and then they're shocked that I sound like a guido from New York, and they're like, what? <laughs> uh, how could that be? Is this your real name? G. Adam Gifford. <laughs> so, um, I'm not a big fan of them because of the amount of profiling and harassment I've experienced. Um, anyway, so I was looking up a stat uh, just a few years ago, and it said something like, I believe Los Angeles has the most lawsuits against law enforcement of all the 50 states. Oh, boy. Like yearly. Like, that's a regular, that's how it is. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, I don't know if that that is still true, maybe I was reading just something about, maybe it was only Los Angeles County, maybe it was all California, I'm pretty sure it was just Los Angeles. Anyway, I was not shocked. I felt vindicated. Hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Because there was all kinds of crazy stuff just happening here recently with the ICE and, and Sheriff and CSP and law enforcement, they were all cooperating to just bust Mexicans here in LA. So. And we're supposed to be a... Uh, what do they call it? Harbor City or something? Or safety? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we, we need like a whole other podcast for that, I think. <laughs> that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. There's a lot to, to, to go through on that. Put it this way. I'm not a fan of any reality stars, and I'm not a fan of billionaires. All right. <laughs> you know, I was talking to, I was talking about Steve Bannon earlier. No. Um, <laughs> number seven. Is there any? Go ahead. If you can't find me, you'll find out why. Oh, I got killed. I don't want to be responsible for that, Adam. 
God, now now I feel now I feel the pressure, man. I was, well, I, that's could be the most important podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway. All right. Number seven. Is there anyone that you haven't been able to work with that you're dying to work with that you'd love to work with at some type, point in your career? Uh wow. There used to be. I used to feel that way about actors. I don't feel that way anymore. There are roles I'm dying to do. There's nobody I'm really dying to work with. There aren't even directors that I'm dying to work with like I used to. I mean, there's people I think are fantastic, but, you know. You just want to work. Uh, yeah, well, of course, that, that's my normal life. I have to say yes to everything because I'm always struggling financially to stay alive and be available to do work. So I have to say yes. No matter how racist or my, my role is or stereotypical, I have to say yes. So I've been a beggar, not a chooser this last time. As much as I've created things, television series that almost went, and a film I did that going to festival, all kinds of stuff. It won awards, that uh, film. I've done things to sort of make my dream happen and not just wait around for the industry to include me, but none of those things have worked either, like all my record deals. So it's been just a lot of frustration, close calls, and disappointments. So it's very hard for me to get excited, like when I was young, and be like, this is the year. This is the pilot season. You know, I can't. Now I'm just like, whatever, I'll take it. No, okay. All right. Whoever. We're gonna talk later. We talk. We talk sometimes on, on chat. I'll talk to you. I got some ideas. We'll we'll create something. Uh, number. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you, if they won't give it to us, we'll take it, Adam. <laughs> was there a time when I wanted to work with like uh, Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott in a film? Yeah, there was a time. Was there a time when I wanted to work with Marlon Brando or De Niro, or Pacino? Absolutely. Or Spielberg, or you know, and I almost was in The Outsiders. I tested for for what's his name Johnny I, it was against me and Ralph Macchio but wow. Francis wanted me and I, I tested and I was in Zoe Trope in his studio with me and C. Thomas Howell right there and there was nobody else no crew was, Francis used to own his own I say Francis like he's my buddy but Francis Ford Coppola used to own uh, his own uh, studio on uh, Sunset near Vine and I was like 13 years old and so I really was the age of the character and he okay. was like 16 mm. but he was emancipated and apparently Francis Ford Coppola was loving me, but the studio didn't like me because I wasn't, I was going to have to take classes because I was still not emancipated. Do you know what that is? Um, like, not, not, uh... you go to court and your, your parents basically say, no, no, he's an adult, but he still lives on his own. Uh, you still live with your family. Gotcha. So that means they don't have to pay for a, you to have classes and have shorter hours on the work day. Everybody's working like an adult. Overtime, whatever. And because C's dad, C. Thomas Howell's dad, was a stuntman, when C. Thomas Howell got E.T., his dad knew he was going to work or something was willing to let him get emancipated. My mother would not allow me to be emancipated. Mm. Over my dead body, I think this is what my mother said. And uh, so I got passed, but apparently Mr. Coppola wanted me, and Ralph Macchio was like 18, playing younger. So he was legal. And that could have made your career, wow. But it was down to me, and guess what else? Karate Kid, that director, he's the guy who discovered me and cast me in my first movie in 77 after he won the Academy Award for Rocky. Wow. It was John G. Avildsen. So may, if I got the Outsiders, maybe they would have let me play Italian and do Karate Kid, you know, but whatever. Didn't happen. Okay. Bummer when you look back at something like that, like testing with Francis Ford Coppola, the director of The Godfather, 
and you're just like, oh my God. And he's just loving you. And you're like, this is unbelievable. And then the movie happens, and people like Tom Cruise and Nick Cage are in supporting roles. That's how powerful that movie was. Everybody got famous uh, from the outsiders. I think another year, like another few years later, he could have had that power to go, like, no, I want that kid. You know what I mean? That at the time he was, well, you know, there were fourteen guys when I walked into that room. Fourteen suited, older Caucasian men at that studio that sat and judged me when I came and talked to them. And uh, the bottom line was, if I got emancipated, I believe he would cast me. But wow. whatever, I didn't, and I didn't. By the way, have you ever seen <laughs> being directed by him? By the way, have you ever seen so many white guys in a gang as in that movie? Anyway, uh... <laughs> well, I could think, I, I, you see, you start telling, you open doors for stories. <laughs> I need a bunch of my friends who don't fit the, uh, uh, specifically just Latino. We're all up for these crappy Latino gangbanger roles as Father of the Bride. Do you remember that Steve Martin oh, yeah. in the late 90s? And I was like in my 30s already, and I'm up against guys that are like 16, and we're all just up for these crappy gangbanger roles. And we're all looking at each other like, is this what we're studying acting for? Like, is this it? We're just going to play these lame? And then we're all going to beat each other out for these crappy, stereotype gangbangers. And guess what they did in the movie? They made the gang all white. Yep. They were like, wow, now if we don't want this sh- shitty gangbanger role, we don't get any work? Uh, that's terrible. It's terrible. How's that for a lesson? Now, your dream is never going to happen, buddy, but keep on playing. <laughs> All right, n- number eight. <laughs> no, number eight. I'm setting you up for a joke here. What was the best picture of the year? Was it La La Land or Moonlight? Uh, for me, it was neither. Okay. That <laughs> no no confusion me, there. <laughs> None at all. For me, it was Hidden Figures should have been the movie all right. personally. And another one that was my real personal favorite was the Jungle Book movie. The movie with the little kid and all the animated, or the, and the creatures, talking creatures. Okay. See, I set you up for a joke there, Adam. You're supposed to say the wrong thing first and then correct yourself. Go, that's not what I meant to say. But anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> you I have were... no comic timing. Uh, you're fine, man. You're fine. <laughs> I've ruined your career and put your life at risk in this interview. It's crazy. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's the worst interview ever. No, Number nine. <laughs> Do you prefer a sports or a night at the theater? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's another kind of neither of these. I used to love a night at the theater, always over sports. I mean, I could get real with you. The truth is my old man never really communicated with me when he spent time with me on the weekend. So he, I didn't want to follow sports because then it was clear that he was going to use that as an excuse for the only way for us to talk about. We could just talk about sports and not really ever get real. So I kind of never got into sports. And the other manly thing he did, which was fix cars, because... I was like, uh, I don't know. I wanted him to actually give a damn about me, maybe, and not be able to get away with talking about innocuous things that don't matter, like who's going to win this weekend or how to fix his carburetor. That was my... So I've never really embraced sports in that way, even though I did play some sports. Okay. And I'm physically... You know, I'm a physical person, but... Uh, so, and I've been in the theater since I was six years old, bro. So that's so in your blood, right? A lot of theater. I saw the original Chorus Line on Broadway in the 70s. I saw the original Annie. I saw the original The Wiz. I saw the original Grease. I saw wow. some incredible theater. When my mother was doing it, uh, she was working in England in 78. I went to the National Theater and saw all these incredible actors who were about to come and take over America. 
the Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah. Doing incredible theater at the National in England. So I've, I've definitely been grateful to see some incredible theater performances in my life. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, uh, number 10, last question. Um, we talked earlier about, you know, what role you would want. Like, you know, first of all, your dream job. But your dream, so what's the role that breaks you out of these these uh, oh. these roles that you feel are crappy roles or lesser roles? What's the role that you think would be a role you're happy that you finally got something like this? Huh. Well, basically, if I get cast like a white guy gets cast, and they never talk about my race, and I don't have to have an accent, and I don't have to, like, justify why I'm in the story. <laughs> right. It'd be great. It'd be great to just not have to do that. And, yeah, like I said, save the day, kiss the girl, kick some ass, you know. The action hero. The torch, the laser, you know. I like, I personally have an affinity for characters that are kind of, um, maybe they're, they're maybe cursed or possessed even. So I could use some of my physical acting and voiceover acting to like be two characters in one role. Hmm. I've always felt connected to people like the Hulk or, or the Ghost Rider or, you know, characters or that are, something comes over them and there's this whole other side of them. I could see that. I'd yeah. love to be able to kind of, you know, like maybe I'm channeling a past life of being like a giant berserker Viking. You know, and meanwhile, there's a whole other storyline where I could, you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense, man. I got to tell you, I I have really enjoyed this conversation, Adam. You've had a lot to say. As is the case with any good interview that I have, uh, which is I, I always talk about how great my, my guests have been, how lucky I've been, because I don't have that much connection in Hollywood, right? I, I've been getting I've been getting some great guests considering that. And and to have someone like you on and have so much to offer because we we hit the gambit of things today, and uh, it's just been a pleasure talking Thanks, to you, Chris. buddy. I'm glad to have you on. It's been a pleasure for me too, and I I had a lot of coffee, so I babbled quite a bit. I, it's okay. I to... <laughs> <laughs> but, no, you're uh, fine. Man. You're a lot of fun, man. Know, it was it was a pleasure to talk to you, and meet you, kind of over the this communication. You know, first time we've spoken verbally. That is correct. Yeah. So. I hope I hope that fantastic things. I hope you make Mark Marin money. <laughs> Is he like the biggest podcast? I hope I make Howard Stern money, but yeah, I'll take Mark Marin money oh, too. Okay. Well, <laughs> Aim high, high, buddy. Yeah, Aim high. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Howard Stern. What am I saying? I, I get you know. I'm like yeah, I gotta take those crappy short, fat white guy roles. I mean, <laughs> hey, Mark. Mark got a series after the podcast. Have you seen his? He has a whole comedy series. I have to I check know. it out. It's very perverse, but funny. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> no definitely. Answer, no doubt about it. All right, man. Well, you take care, man. Thank you for coming on the show. All right. You too. It was a pleasure. All the spot analysis. Am I crazy? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Are we on a podcast? Yeah. I, I think I'm gonna come get some. If you want some, come. Gotta get that. Gotta get that. Gotta get some. Oh, oh, oh.
my favorite, it. though. Am I? You're my favorite. Well, thank you yeah. so much. I, I think not. Put me on the e-meter and ask me a question, and the needle would float. 